Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. In 1927, the Federal Radio Commission came into being to address what some called chaos on the radio spectrum. It would be replaced less than a decade later by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, we all know today. But how did these agencies come about? What was the politics behind their creation? Thomas Hazlett is a law and economics scholar and a former chief economist to the FCC. He's a professor of economics at Clemson, where he also directs the Information Economy Project. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, The Economist, The New Republic, The Weekly Standard, and Time, to name a few. And his latest book is The Political Spectrum, the Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone. Tom, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So to start, uh, why did the government initially get involved with, uh, with the radio spectrum? Well, things were pretty quiet after Guglielmo Marconi invented radios in the late 1800s. But in the early 1920s, uh, they got more um, boisterous. And that was because there was a new business model, broadcasting. And uh, in the United States, you had, within a couple of years, uh, 500 broadcasters put up uh, big antennas with high power emissions. And now all of a sudden, conflict conflict was was possible. So there had to be rules. But fortunately, there were rules. And the Department of Commerce actually enforced first come, first serve in frequency space. And that maintained order such that there were millions of radio sets sold. And uh, it became a a killer application even by the mid-1920s. What happened was that political authorities actually wanted more discretion over who could broadcast and what they could say. At the same time, the first successful commercial stations, uh, they, they saw an interest in trying to stop the entry of new competitors. And so you had a very uh, early coalition form of incumbent radio stations and incumbent political actors, including the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, later president, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, they got together and, and, in fact, passed the 1927 Radio Act. It was said that it was absolutely necessary to guard against etheric bedlam but that's not that's not actually the way it played out there was a, an orderly development of radio and then there were some political machinations and a, and a coalition developed and in fact you got a very political system for allocating airways that dates to 90 years ago and still goes on today and obviously we can we can figure out why the the established radio stations might want to prevent new radio stations but what was what was the government what were they worried about or what were they trying to prevent or or to, or do by um enacting these regulations they saw the radio medium being influential over mass communications i mean this was the first uh, mass market electronic communication platform. It was instantaneous and it was broad. And uh, so they wanted some uh, authority, some control to influence what was said. And this was a, a fairly conservative position. Of course, Hoover was a Republican and uh, was not opposed to big business. In fact, thought the government should work with big business to hammer out solutions. And uh, many Democrats in Congress had similar uh, beliefs. They were a little nervous about Hoover being the authority. Uh, But uh, anyway, as as the coalition and the compromise plays out, you do get political authority. And you can see that instantly 
there, there are policies like equal time rules and mm-hmm. fairness doctrines that uh, have nothing to do with policing the traffic in the, in the, in the uh, radio spectrum, but have to do with content control. So, so in 1929, coming up for a license renewal, a station in Chicago called um, WCFL, which was owned by the Chicago Federation of Labor and was pointedly pro-worker, pro-labor in its, in its uh, uh, philosophical viewpoint. And the labor union had bought the station to, um, uh, to espouse its views of what should happen with public policy in the United States. That station is uh, basically read a warning by the Federal Radio Commission that it was narrowly interested. It was not appealing to the, to, to the wide audience and that it was a propaganda station. That's the term used by the Radio Commission. And um, the commission uh, was very conservative in what power it allowed the station to utilize and what hours of operation it would grant. And um, WCFL was was, uh, materially harmed and in fact took the warning to heart. They they basically aligned with the NBC for mainstream programming and years later, uh, after people would be shocked even though it was owned by a trade union, uh, because they had become so homogenized in their uh, political viewpoints. But at any rate, years later, it was actually sold to Amway. <laughs> so the, 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 the fairness doctrine, which people know more famously coming into being for television in the late 1940s, actually starts very early and shows the political interest in influencing content over the airwaves. Yeah, and, and just a, a brief sort of explanation. What is the, the fairness doctrine? Or was? Well, it's a... a po- yeah, it's, it's, it's basically a policy where the government can uh, look at radio or television broadcasters licensed under the 1927 Act according to public interest, and the government gets to make a judgment as to whether or not the issues that are covered uh, uh, are a fair representation of controversial uh, issues of concern to the local communities and whether the station does uh, present uh, balanced perspectives. Mm-hmm. Now, formally, uh, this was an informal policy, as I said, starting almost instantly after the 27 Act. Formally, it was put into law uh, in the late 1940s, particularly for television uh, stations. And um, in 1987, uh, after much debate and controversy, it was abolished under the Reagan administration FCC. And we can actually see by looking at the radio markets in particular that there was a very open uh, market for free speech afterwards that uh, involves, you know, not just the the rise of conservative talk radio, but in fact, a much higher percentage of stations being utilized for news, talk and public affairs programming, because now they're no longer um, subject to, to the, the liability, if you will, of having to give free equal time for competing viewpoints, uh, which is what the rule had been under the Fairness Doctrine. And uh, obviously the the radio itself uh, be, was very popular with the public um, and, and grew exponentially. Um, what was the public's reaction to things like the Fairness Doctrine um, and these sort of these regulations against content in the early days? Well, that's, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. In, in, in fact, uh, some of this, uh, you might call it public interest censorship, is very popular. And when political authorities say we don't want uh, chaos in the airways, by which they mean open debate, um, <laughs> often that, that gets a, a, a good response from 
uh, folks on the left and right. And, and one of the ironies of the Fairness Doctrine in the 1980s, which, as I said, was abolished at the FCC in a very controversial move uh, by the uh, appointees of Ronald Reagan, a Republican uh, conservative president, uh, conservatives in Congress were actually, by and large, in favor of the Fairness Doctrine. And people like uh, Senator Jesse Helms and Congressman Newt Gingrich uh, fought to reinstate the Fairness Doctrine. And uh, in fact, the President Reagan ended up vetoing legislation after that that kept it uh, kept it out. Now that's that turns out to be very important, not just in regulating radio and television, but in regulating the emerging medium, uh, the, the emerging media and cable TV, and particularly now with uh, online networks and over-the-top video. Mm -hmm. uh, all those regulations were set aside uh, in terms of content, uh, more or less, even before the uh, the internet, and and that. That, that may well have had a very important effect in keeping the Internet um, basically a regulation-free zone. Um, and so, obviously, this, this speaks to the idea that the FCC's role has, has changed over the years, although the idea of, I think, sort of content policing it goes back to the, the the original days. But what? how has it changed over the years, especially with uh, cable television and and the Internet and things like that? Yeah, so there, there has been a change, and that's, in essence, the subtle part of the book. Now, there's there's a lot that happens um, with uh, the, the public interest allocations uh, for Radio Spectrum under the 27 Act that, that stifles competition and, and really shortchanges entry. And new innovation has a very tough time under this system. And there, there, there are many horror stories. There's a whole section of the book called Silence of the Entrance. And we talk, uh, for example, about uh, Edwin Howard Armstrong, the great inventor uh, who contributed uh, mightily to AM radio and, and came up with a better system in the mid-1930s, mm -hmm. FM radio, had a tough time getting licenses and airspace. Finally, before World War II, was able to uh, get experimental and uh, uh, licenses to start out. They had 500,000 radio sets. These are big consoles, very expensive, sold before World War II. It was a, an absolute smash hit with consumers. The high-fidelity sound quality was excellent compared to the old system. The war comes, and at the end of World and everything stops, all civilian uh, radio production. At the end of World War II, the FCC essentially kills off FM by uprooting the entire band, placing it somewhere else where there, there's no technology, no receivers, and all the very expensive um, half a million receiver sets that had been purchased are now worthless. <laughs> and Armstrong ends up uh, literally committing suicide in 1954 with his, his great technology uh, suppressed and, and, uh, and defeated by regulatory forces. Uh, you, you fast forward to, to a more current example, and you come into the 2000s when a great innovator, Steve Jobs, wants to make a radio. And uh, now there's been enough liberalization in, in, the, in the current era. There actually is a lot of flexibility in how airwaves are used, that uh, the carriers, mobile uh, network owners, do have wide jurisdiction to use the allotted frequencies now not exactly to how the government defines the space, but they can imagine their own network and they can actually approve their own devices and create their own applications. And so jobs with Apple and the iPhone, uh, circa 2005, they actually play the networks off against each other and they go into the marketplace to get, in essence, spectrum for their radio. 
And when the iPhone is introduced uh, just 10 years ago, June of uh, 2007, of course, there was an exclusive with AT&T in the United States Mm -hmm. Uh, that ends up uh, breaking down over time. And of course, the iPhone goes around the world uh, having carriers bid against each other for the rights to actually host uh, this, this new innovation. But this is the sort of innovation, sort of technology improvement or upgrade and business uh, business model experimentation tying in with the App Store and iTunes and, and this wonderful innovation ecosystem that's developed around the iPhone and, importantly, a spurred competition in, 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 uh, with respect to, to, to Android and, and Google Play uh, and, and competing ecosystems. All of this comes in without the regulatory overhead of the very narrow system that was adopted uh, at the uh, at the request of Herbert Hoover in 1927, that has to do with a long liberalization that's taken place, and it really has produced uh, tremendous benefits for society. So, you argue um, that some of these regulations have, uh, as you're saying, stifled um, stifled uh, new technology in in cases. Uh, the FM radio is an example. Are there other examples of? Uh, things that that have been sort of squashed by by these regulations. Yeah, there's there's a long list. I say there's uh, there was a fourth competing network way back in the 1940s and early 50s, the Dumont network, that was eliminated by the 1952 TV allocation table that didn't allow for uh, nationwide coverage of that fourth competitor. The Dumont network uh, had the shutter by 1955 just because of the, the rules that were adopted, and they were well-warned. Uh, the regulators were well-warned on this. Um, today, even as we sit here, uh, satellite radio, which has about 30 million subscribers in the United States, uh, cannot do what's, what's technically defined as local news or programming. Why would this be? They distribute signals all over the country, and they actually have the technology to go market by market and, and provide individual programs with local hosts and, and do uh, local reports. They're actually banned by the terms of their license from doing that. You can get traffic reports and weather news from uh, on Seattle, but, but that news is, is aired in Miami nationwide. It takes <laughs> up enormous bandwidth and not much is done. And you can't do much local programming. Why? Because the terrestrial radio stations, the old incumbents, they actually, uh, fearing competition in local advertising markets, they have uh, successfully lobbied to get rules in place that hamstring their direct competitor. As a result, the 30 million uh, listeners and subscribers to satellite radio get less product. And in fact, everybody gets, even, even the people who don't subscribe, they have less competition in local markets because satellite radio is taken out of the market by regulation. So a lot of this is ongoing. As I said, there's been great liberalization, but we have so much farther to go. And most of the radio spectrum, uh, even now, is allocated to legacy services that might have been interesting in the 40s or 50s or 60s, but are no longer interesting or practical. And so we need to, to uh, really uh, make some hard choices politically to move forward with uh, these, these more liberal rules that have unleashed a torrent of uh, innovation in the markets where they've been uh, applied. So what do you see as the ideal role for the FCC, or does it need to exist at all? 
Well, I mean, I, I make the prediction of the book that 100 years from now, there will not be an FCC. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my prediction. <laughs> um, it, it just, it, it's, its central role in politicizing spectrum allocation is just not socially efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, how, how much sooner than 100 years? Yeah, uh, I, I don't get that crazy to make that prediction. <laughs> but I will offer, and I do in the book, uh, discuss at some length, uh, the practical solutions right now that under existing FCC practices and using tested regulatory templates can be applied to allow market forces to come in and, and, and provide a lot more bandwidth for experimentation, capacity of existing networks, and of course the challenges uh, presented by new entrants that might want to try something completely different. And um, I, you know, there 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 are methods that have, that have been applied, and and, and regulators, um, in fact, are are painfully aware of the the cost of the restrictions. There are many networks that show up, you know, virtually every business day at the Federal Communications Commission, asking for special waivers or dispensation to get their their new radios, not FM radios anymore, not Apple's, but 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 other pretty amazing new new devices to get uh, capacity for those uh, for those devices and networks and, and applications to come in the market. And, and the regulators know full well that their systems are very rigid and frustratingly slow in allocating spectrum. So we, we do need to move more towards the um, the models that have worked to, to squeeze spectrum out of the uh, regulatory vault, as it as it were, and get it into the marketplace where competitors can uh, risk their own uh, their own capital to see what uh, what what new uh, and amazing um, opportunities are out there. And how much of the spectrum is you know currently allocated uh, for the various uses? Is there is there a, you know are we going to run out at some point if things keep going? Is that a, is that a danger? Well, the prime radio waves are scarce. People pay a price if they get access. We just had an auction that the, the Federal Communications Commission ran where it uh, registered about $20 billion in, in bids for uh, access to about a quarter of the existing television band allocated in 1952 and now basically obsolete because the world has shifted the cable, satellite, and now internet broadband over the top to distribute video. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of spectrum out there. There's still going to be 35 TV channels over the air set aside. Again, it was great to distribute I Love Lucy in 1952, but it's it's really beside the point today. Uh, We need to uh, be more uh, open and liberal about how we we allocate those airways. And, And, of course, many government agencies have huge allocations, the U.S. military, uh, Federal uh, Aviation Administration, uh, even the Forestry Service and, and the maritime um, uh, agencies have all kinds of uh, spectrum allocations, and some of them are in places where there aren't any forests and there aren't any seas. Uh, so we, those rigidities, um, you know, are, are very difficult, to, you know, and they, 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 they last uh, in time for, for generations. Uh, so we we do uh, hopefully need to take a focus on that. You know, when when the today when when people are talking about infrastructure and how we have to really develop uh, uh, the uh, you know the, to to help get economic growth and and, and wage growth and so forth, uh, it's amazing that we've got essentially a, a resource that that is is being wasted. I mean, it's a natural resource of tremendous uh, economic um, 
importance, uh, economic oxygen for the modern economy, as many have called it. Mm -hmm. And and we we literally set it aside and, and don't use it at all. We waste it by not using it. And the government does have huge allocations that have been set aside, as I say, for many agencies. And it's a, it's a challenge that uh, we talk about in the book, um, how we can have better economic incentives for freeing up uh, some of these, uh, these, these set-asides. Yeah, and that leads to um, another question. You, there's often the complaint that uh, Americans pay more for broadband access uh, than other developed countries and that that, 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 that broadband is slower. Uh, the internet is slower for more money. So, what, what's why? Why is that the case? Is does that have to do with these regulations, or is there something else at play here? Well, I mean, there, there's there's a there's a true part of it, and there's an exaggeration part of it. The United States uh, is 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 fairly competitive on the international stage uh, when when you actually dig under the numbers. But the uh, but there are some frustrating um, you know restrictions, and and for years, of course. Um, as we talk about in the book, uh, broadcast television was protected from competition. Cable was thwart, actively thwarted uh, for, for essentially a generation. Then cable comes into the market uh, with deregulation in the late 70s, early 80s, and becomes very successful in delivering you know, hundreds of channels of competing you know, content and great diversity from news and information and public affairs you know, everything from C-SPAN to, to Vice to, to, to HBO, all this new uh, uh, competition comes in the market. But, of course, at the structural level, uh, cable TV companies are often receiving monopoly franchises from municipal governments. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's taken a while to actually uh, try to undo that. Satellite in the 1990s helped. Uh, we got uh, uh, some video competition uh, through two national um, uh, direct-to-subscriber to satellite services. Then in the early 2000s, we did allow telephone companies to compete the, to, to create their own competing video systems, and that has helped quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of broadband service, we need more of that, and we, we also need much more radio spectrum to facilitate the capacity of, of, of existing and new networks uh, to, to allow mobile, to allow wireless to compete with the fixed networks. And certainly that would, would go a long way to increasing speed and reducing price and creating great new applications that people have not yet thought of. Right. And I mean, you know, I, you're talking, I think, about going up to maybe 5G or some other G uh, network, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, these migrations now work pretty routinely because there are flexible rights out in the market. That's part of the liberalization. But we've only liberalized a fairly small proportion of the available and productive spectrum. So we need to go on that thought. I mean, we have proof of concept. We just need to run with it. We need, you know, they have these, you know, in the political spectrum, you've got these barriers uh, where there are a lot of interests and a lot of regulatory process you have to get through. My aim is to speed that up. And where does something like, uh, you know, a, a very current... Uh a very current topic is net neutrality. How does that play into all of this? Well, yeah, so, so there's a lot of discussion about uh, networks being neutral and, and how the Internet developed. In fact, the Internet, as we know it, the mass uh, market commercial Internet, uh, develops in a very open way without regulation. And in fact, much of what we know is the Internet, everything from AOL in the 1990s, 
to the competition amongst broadband providers who have invested to increase capacity uh, to and speeds, you know, for the last mile. That all comes in through um, explicit deregulation by the Federal Communications Commission, essentially starting in the, well, if you go back to the late 1960s, where they see that there's a problem that all the new technologies involving computers and information processing are having roadblocks when they face what was the old AT&T monopoly. And so the FCC conducts what it calls unregulation. This is from, from FCC boilerplate in the late 1990s, where they congratulate themselves for not getting in the way and for actually opening them up markets without common carrier rules. Now the, the thought seems to be that common carriers should come back in and regulate the new broadband networks. You don't have the specific net neutrality issue by itself. It's covered by some net neutrality rules, but uh, the, the, the argument for regulation of the wireless networks is 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 actually even weaker than mm -hmm. I think that for the for the fixed line broadband for the simple reason that network management is so vitally important to the wireless network that it has not been a big issue. So it, it's a general issue, and I've written on it before in another context, and uh, it's certainly capturing the imagination mm -hmm. um, of the public. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the the real opportunity to to expand networks and to promote competition. Is, is operating on another, um, I, I might call it a parallel path, but I'll just call it a different path altogether. So I think we can end on maybe a lighter note. Uh, you have an interesting little story uh, in there about, and this might be a good, this might be a good sort of trivia, trivia thing to put into, uh, to put into your, your knowledge banks. Um, what is the story behind the name of the boat on Gilligan's Island? <laughs> well, the most famous speech ever given by an American regulator, I assert in the book, uh, May 9th, 1961, the uh, chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Newton Minow, uh, tells the National Association of Broadcasters, the TV executives assembled in a room, uh, you have a terrible product. When you watch television, you see an unending uh, display throughout the day of nonsensical sitcoms and bad, violent westerns and um, really off-putting commercials, and it's a vast wasteland. And he challenges the industry. He says, I'm going to create a new, tougher renewal process for your licenses. Well, in fact, that's not what happens. There's no tough renewal process. There's no assertion of the public interest other that in perverse fashion to block the emergence of cable TV that comes out. That's the other part of that story. But what happens is that Minnow is hailed as, as some kind of a, an oracle for condemning uh, the, the low quality of over-the-air broadcast television. It didn't seem to occur to most people that this was a regulated market in which just three competitors were allowed to exist, and that was all a product of the regulatory structure at the FGC. Anyway, uh, the only ones that didn't like the speech, it seems, were the broadcast executives in the room. Everybody else uh, was just delighted that uh, a regulator was acting tough, holding the, you know, the, the industry's feet to the fire. And so the, the broadcasters, they had their own kind of sniveling about this. And uh, CBS in uh, 1964, I believe, put uh, the show Gilligan's Island on. And... Um, 
it has, uh, of course, the three-hour ride that turns into uh, a long stay on a remote, uh, isolated island. Uh, that comes about because of a ride on the USS Minnow, a shipwreck <laughs> vessel <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the ocean. And so that was supposed to be a, uh, um, you know, the, the final word of the broadcasters <laughs> to, uh, to, to have their piece, uh, their, their cheap shot uh, back at the chairman of the FCC. <laughs> Followed by many seasons of... Uh... Very complex inventions using only coconuts and and things like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's go. Let's go to that island. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is "The Political Spectrum: The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone." Tom, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.